0: Our scripture this morning comes from Exodus, the books of 19 and 20. On the third day, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. Amen.
1: Uh, Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We continue this morning in our series, uh, taking us throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, and we come to what is really a very important passage uh, in the Bible to understand the story that the Bible is telling uh, from beginning to end, which is our goal in what we're doing uh, over these uh, next few months, probably actually the rest of this year. So just be mindful of that. Uh, By way of review, I want to say God, to this point, God has saved Israel in the exodus and he sanctified them through their wilderness wanderings. That's what we've been looking at just about since Christmas. And both of those images are very important for us. Uh, Every single person who calls himself a Christian has had an exodus experience and a wilderness experience. And the exodus experience is what we normally refer to as conversion to the point in your life, even if it happened over the course of months or weeks or sometimes even years, when you decidedly put your hope and trust in Jesus and chose to live for him. What the Bible would say is that you're not a Christian if you haven't had an exodus experience of some kind, but also every Christian not only has had an exodus experience, but every true Christian, every genuine Christian has also had a wilderness experience. And the wilderness experience is the process of sanctification, of God taking you through a dry time, taking you through a hard time, taking you through, you know, a tough time to increase your faith and build your spiritual muscles. It's a spiritual boot camp. And this is what's happened to Israel in these stories. And it's the same thing that happens in the life of every single person who decidedly chooses to live for him and follow him. God saves you. He sanctifies you. And he does this, what we've been saying over and over again, we're going to say again this morning, he does this because he has a mission and the reason that he got involved with us in the first place is to involve us in his mission. So Americans are prone, we are prone to think of Christianity or our religious life like everything else in our life in terms of our individual and personal experience, And so we often approach God like a consumer, but according to the Bible, to become a Christian means something much, much more than that. It means that when you put your faith in Jesus, your life immediately begins to get swept up into what He is doing in the world. You're transferred into a new kingdom, into a new story, into a new movement of grace and love that just takes you away and carries you off to places. That you maybe never even intended to go in the first place. And if an illustration would help. I thought of it this way. Imagine yourself standing on the shore of a rushing river. Now okay we're in Polk County. So I need to say don't picture the Peace River. Okay which barely creeps along. You know it's kind of a glorified swimming pool. Picture picture the Nantahala or better the Colorado River. With rapids and waterfalls and the like. Now most of us. Like to think of our relation our spirituality or our, our religion as something like this. It would be this would be the best way that I could say it. It's that we're familiar with the river. We we like the river. We may even live near the river. And when we get tired and we need something to drink and we need to be refreshed, we come to the river, we get a drink, or we wade out into the water up to our knees, but not too far. Or if we feel dirty, we come and we get some water from the river and we wash our clothes, but we're careful to stay, stay near the shoreline for fear of being carried away by the pole of the water and the rapids and being consumed by them. But when the Bible talks about faith, it defines it much more differently. Faith means that you come to the edge of the river and you see its power. And you know that you, if you get caught up in the current, you're going to be swept away and dashed against the rocks and maybe even drowned. But then you leap. And Israel leapt. And the river of God's grace and salvation that began coming to them in Egypt swept them away and dumped them out here at the foot of God's mountain, Sinai. And if you leap, the river will sweep you away and dump you out at the same place here at the foot of Sinai where God comes to lay absolute claim upon our lives. The scholars and the commentators say that this scene resembles the ancient Near Eastern Covenant ceremonies between kings and the people they conquered. That the king would would there would be a ceremony and the king would promise to rule and protect the people that he had conquered, and they in return would promise fealty and obedience to his will, to his law, and that's what's happening here. God is a king, and he's doing what kings do. And what do they do? Well, they rule over their subjects. So he's saying to Israel, here is my law. Here is my will. This is what I desire you to do. Obey me. God's saying, I saved you. I brought you through the wilderness because there's something I'm trying to accomplish in the world and I'm intent to use you to accomplish it. So if you will listen to my words and obey me, I will make you into the kind of people who can do that work for me. Here is my law. If you follow it, it will make you my and then you see these three things there in verses five and six. It'll make you my treasure possession, it'll make you a holy nation, and it'll make you my kingdom of priests. And those are the three things that we want to look at this morning, okay? Those you see those three things in your outline. That God's that, that God is here giving like every king did, giving his people, his law, his will. And he's saying, If you do these things, if you obey me in what I'm telling you to do now, it'll make you a treasure possession a holy people, and ultimately it will make you a kingdom of priests. And those are the three points of our outline this morning. I want to see these three things, okay? This is the correspondence here. I want you to see the importance of the law. I want you to see the order of law and grace, and then ultimately we're going to see how the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Those are the three things. Now, one, let me just, one thing. We are not going to get, this is a really important passage in the Bible, we're not going to get onto uh, all of the specifics. We're going to deal more with the generalities today. In fact, one of the things that became really clear in our in our time, our the pastors in our network of churches get together every Wednesday, and we were. And, we, and it's funny how you get a group of pastors in the room who all went to the same seminary, pretty much, and you would think we'd all basically have the same ideas and believe the same things, and yet even we get confused. And listen, pray. If we get confused, what hope do we have of ever doing anything except confuse the people we're talking to? And one of the things we realized is the reason for a lot of confusion when it comes to the law and, okay, Christians are under grace, what does the law have to do with our lives? A lot of the confusion has to do with we read passages like this in Exodus 19 and we don't read them in light of what God is doing from the beginning to the end of the scriptures. So this morning what we're trying to do is take this passage, go from Genesis all the way to the end, you know, in Revelation, open up the entire scriptures as it relates to this theme of law and that's so generalities, big picture stuff, not necessarily the specifics of this passage. We're going to come back to that uh, next week, okay? So three things. Again, God wants to make us a treasure possession, a holy people, and ultimately a kingdom of priests. So first, okay, we have to see first the importance of obedience, the importance of the law so that we might be God's treasure possession. Now, if you look at all the religions of the world, they all can basically be broken down into two categories, okay? Two types of religious systems. There are the religion, religions where law is all that matters, where law is the main thing. Law-keeping is the totality of the religious system, and the adherents of that particular religion spend all their time, all of their energy obeying and keeping all of the rules, okay? So you have things like, I'm getting stuck here, you have things like Judaism, or or Islam and the five pillars, these religions in the world where the main thing, the big deal is uh, your obedience, your moral effort, you know, the law is all that matters. And so there are those religions where law is all that matters, but then, if you look carefully, you also notice that on the other end, there are religions where law doesn't matter at all, where there's no moral code, where there's no obedience that's necessary or expected or required. There's no obligation or duty at all. And, and here I have in mind religious systems like Hinduism, which is basically um, a very detailed, very organized superstition, or Buddhism or some of the Eastern religions, where at least in the way that it's strange how Hollywood has adopted a lot of these things and made it so that, that what is absolute is self actualization and self expression. But no moral standard. So you have, okay, so the law is all that matters, the law doesn't matter at all. Now, ironically, and unfortunately, this is even true within Christianity, inside the Christian framework, you find people gravitate to one or the other of these two extremes. It's because we don't know quite what to do with the law. I mean, isn't, you know, don't Christians believe in salvation by grace? I mean, what is, how do we really make sense of the law? And so you have groups, you have churches and ministries and organizations and even, you know, Christian media outlets and even denominations that drift towards... The law is all that matters. We would call that moralism or legalism. And for these groups, the substance of Christianity, whether they even consciously or organizationally are aware of it or not, is being right or being good. Christianity is a moral code. What matters is if you're following the rules and towing the party line. And I want to say, okay, hear me, obedience matters. That's the whole point of the first part of this sermon. But for these groups, obedience is what makes you a Christian. And that's where the problem is. They reduce Christianity to a moral code, just a different moral code than the other religions of the world. Jesus becomes a teacher and an example to follow, not a savior. And the gospel is reduced to something like advice and not the good news that it is. And I use the word drift. I said they drift, right? Because it's not always obvious. And then there are the groups, inside again, inside Christianity, that drifts toward, drift towards the law doesn't matter at all position. And these are affiliations and ministries and denominations that we would label as, and this is a big theological word, you ready? Antinomian, which, if you know Greek or word power made easy from high school, you know anti means without or, or you know, no. It's, it's the opposite. And namas is the Greek word law, so it means there's no law, there are no rules. You can do whatever you want to, it really doesn't matter. Or some form of theological liberalism, and for them, there are no absolutes, there are no rules. And this happens inside Christianity. There are plenty of denominations in, in, in ministry groups that are kind of just making things up as they go along. There's the sentimental, we're all God's children and God's love, God loves everybody group. I mean, there are all these different versions of this kind of thing. And, and one of the things I want to say to you is, what you have to be really careful about, even in your own heart and life, is this, this tendency to have a sort of pendulum swing effect. You know what I mean? So many of us in the room, we grew up in very legalistic, very moralistic uh, backgrounds where the, the law really was all that mattered. What was really important was the rules. And then we came to an awakening and an understanding that God doesn't love us because we obey Him. He loves us out of sheer grace. And, and then when you come to that understanding, the temptation is to do what? woo I can do whatever I want to! Because after all, nothing I do really matters anyway. And then there are some of us there's some of us who you know, some of us who came we grew up in this very probably liberal, very very um, you know, no restrictions whatsoever kind of kind of environment. And then we, we come to the end and we realize how how empty that is. And so the tendency is to become very, very, very over here, just very, very moralistic, very legalistic, very very harsh, very you know, very insistent on things. And so you have to be really careful. Of this pendulum swing that would happen and that you even see, and it's sad, even even in our city, even in within the Christian you know, community. Now, most people outside and even inside Christianity believe either one of these two things, and this is where this is where really we really get to it. Either they believe the law is what saves you, that being a good person is what's important, being moral, keeping the rules is the way of salvation, or on the other hand, the law Is something you have to get beyond. Either it's the the means of your salvation or it's something you have to get beyond. That morality is just a social construct. What you need to do is find your own truth, find your own path. And according to this passage, both of those positions are far too simple. Now, let me. So, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to poke at each of them for just a minute, okay? And let me poke for just a minute at the last group that I mentioned first. The law doesn't matter at all group. NPR. Uh, A couple of years ago, I ran a story that noted a number of studies done over the course of 100 years or so where subjects were blindfolded and then asked to walk in a straight line. Have you ever tried to do that? Every time, without fail, the people, if they were left to themselves, ended up walking in circles. One particular study in particular in a forest in Germany, uh, they put people in the middle of a a forest in Germany and asked them to walk as best they could uh, in a straight line towards, you know, a particular object. And they ran the study on two different occasions. The first time they they did it, they did it on a day when it was overcast and foggy and you couldn't make out any um, fixed reference point on the horizon, right? The sun wasn't out so you couldn't see the sun and and be guided by that or a mountain or whatever it might be. And then the second time they ran the study, they ran it on a a day when the sun was out and the sky was clear and you could see the, the horizon and you could make out shapes and mountains and trees and what those sorts of things and find a fixed reference point and keep heading in that direction. And what they found is that on the cloudy day, the people in the study, literally, given enough time, ended up going around in circles. But when they could make out some sort of fixed reference point and go, to, in other words, there, okay, I'm going to go towards that, they could maintain a relatively straight line. And here was how the article put it at the very end. This was NPR, okay? You read, this is amazing. But here's what, here's what the, the writer said. He said, humans apparently slip into circles when we can't see an external focal point like a mountaintop, a sun, or a moon. Without a corrective, our insides take over, and there's something inside of us that won't stay straight. <laughs> now, what's the point of the illustration? I think it's this. The law doesn't matter at all. Group is trying to make it through life guided by their own internal moral compass. They've thrown off any idea that there's an external transcendent truth, an external transcendent morality that every single person is subject to. There's no right and wrong, you'll hear people say in our culture. There's only what's right and wrong for you or what's right and wrong for me. And the problem with our relying on our own subjective opinion to guide us, is that there is something wrong with us, something wrong with our subjective opinion. There's something inside of us that won't say straight. And if you throw away the idea that there's any objective reality that has a claim on you, then you're left with no ground to stand on because, of course, to believe that everything is acceptable is ultimately to believe nothing. And if you want an illustration of what it looks like, To live this way, just look at what happened to Cracker Barrel a few weeks ago when the whole Phil Robertson thing broke. Now I know who I'm talking to. If I was in New York City, Tim Keller would never use Phil Robertson as an illustration, but we are in Polk County, so this works, right? And if you remember, they they took a stand, uh, and in light of his comments about the homosexual community, and they were going to pull the Duck Dynasty products from the stores because his views. They said in a statement, did not reflect their own corporate convictions, and then, lo and behold, 24 hours later apologized and said they were wrong because of the outrage of their customer base over what they decided to do. So what do they believe? Do they agree with Phil Robertson? No. They think he's wrong to believe what he does, but then they also think they're wrong for saying he was wrong. Is anybody confused? They're lost in the woods going around in circles. And that's the problem with saying the law doesn't matter at all. Of course it does. I mean, if God may, why is God coming here in Exodus 19 to give them the law? If he made us... Then he knows what we need to be happy and whole, and he knows what causes breakdown. And that's the law. God's law is his directions for running the human machine and running human society. The law is the way of life. The law is the fixed reference point we need to stay straight. And without it, our insides take over and we get all messed up. But we hate it because we don't want to be ruled. We we hate the idea that God would rule us. We don't want to be ruled. But can I ask a question? What if we need to be ruled? So God says to Israel and to us there in verse 5, if you indeed obey my voice, you see that? If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me a treasured possession among all people. See, it's true, the law can't save you. Obedience doesn't save you, but it does make you his treasure. Of course, he already loves them. But look at what he says, I want you to obey me so that you can become my treasure. And what that means is, is this. In every relationship, as the relationship progresses... If you really love the person, you eventually begin to discover what activities they enjoy and the food they like to eat and so forth and so even though you may not you may you know you may enjoy a rock concert instead of the opera, you go to the opera because you love this person and you know it's what they love. It's one of the hard parts and one of the beautiful parts of falling in love with somebody, but what matters to you is their joy it's their happiness and that's why the law is important the law is God's self-disclosure of his heart to us he's saying i delight in honesty i delight in justice i delight in compassion and obedience means that we do what god loves because his joy and his happiness is what matters the most because we love him and that when we start to do that that's when we begin to we begin to begin to experience and understand what it means for us to be what he calls here his treasured possession his people that he loves, that love him, that we delight in him as he delights in us and experience intimacy and communion with him. Now, secondly, okay, so the first thing that we should take note of from the story is the importance of law so that we might become his treasured possession. But the second thing we have to take notice of is the order of law and grace because that's the key to becoming a holy nation. And so now I'm poking, I've come, come to the other side now, right? Now I'm poking at the, the law is... All that is the only thing that matters. The law is all that matters, crowd, okay? And there are three clues in the text that prove the point I'm trying to make here, and I want to look at all three of them. First, I want you to see the chronological order of the events in Exodus, and it's just this God saved Israel from Egypt, He rescued them from their slavery, He brought them out, led them through the wilderness, and then gave them the law. He saves them back in chapters 6 through 12, right? Here in chapter 19, he gives them the law. So even in Exodus, it's salvation, then obedience, grace, then law. Does that make sense? You even see this echoed in the preamble of the Ten Commandments there in chapter 20. And that's the second clue. Look down there. God doesn't begin the Ten Commandments, just launch, you shall have no other gods before me, right? He doesn't launch into the laws. What does he do before that? Look at it. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. So it's grace first. He's saying, I sought you out. You didn't seek me out. I came after you. You didn't come after me. My love goes before your love. I've already loved you. I've already committed to you. Now, now, do the same to me in return. So again, it's grace and then law. And the third clue in the text is the imagery that God uses in his address. Look at what he says to the people, verse 5. He says, you, or verse 4, excuse me, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself now if you will obey my commandments and keep my covenant. Now, so see, you see that? What, what comes first and what comes second? I mean, what did they contribute to their rescue from Egypt? Did they fight their way out? Did they walk out? What's it say? God carried them out. God says, I carried you, which means they did nothing. They contributed nothing to their salvation. It was all of grace. And God says, I've already saved you. Now obey me. And that's the order. See, the God of the Bible says, I've completely loved and accepted you. Now obey me. Every other religion in the world. And even legalistic Christianity that so many many of us have experienced, which just plays with the natural bent of the human heart. Every religion of the world, and even the human heart, has a different operating system. And the operating system of the human heart is, if I obey, if I follow the rules, then God will love and accept me. So what happens is that even inside Christianity, we're always reversing the order and going back to moralism, back to legalism. The gospel is grace, then obedience. Grace, then law. God's love comes first, and then we respond, but we can't seem to keep them in the right order. And that's what Paul's letter to the Galatians in the New Testament is all about. The Galatians started to believe that it was not enough to believe in Jesus. There were false teachers in the church that said you had to believe and obey the law, and then you would be saved. And Paul is writing that letter, and that's why we read from from that for our assurance of pardon today. Paul's writing to reaffirm his gospel, and the gospel's not It's not believe and obey, and then you will be saved. The gospel is believe, and you will be saved, and then you will obey. And this seems somewhat ironic, I know. But when the Lord says that that it's this idea, this keeping this in the right order that makes us a holy people, track with me here if you can, okay? I hope I'm not going to confuse you, but here's the way I want to put it. If you think that the law is what saves you, if you think that obedience is the substance of Christianity, if you think that you're saved by obeying the law, then you'll never obey the law. It's weird, isn't it? God says to Israel in this text, I'm making you a holy people, and holy means set apart or different from everybody else. But if you think the law is what makes you holy, you'll never be holy. See, but if you keep, but if we keep the law and grace in the right order, if you know that it's God's love that makes you holy, only then will you be holy. Because only when it dawns on you, like it did uh, on Paul in Galatians, that you'll never be saved by obeying the law. Only, only then, only at that point, will you become the kind of person who can obey in response to God's past grace and, his, and in view of His future grace. And let me just show you how this. Let me give you a couple of illustrations, if I can, okay, of, of how it is that having this in the right order is what is what makes us a holy people. Okay, look at the text, and look at the people in this passage, okay? What's their emotional, visceral response to this encounter with the Lord at Sinai, right? They're, they're scared to death. Do you see that? I mean, over and over again, the text says they're shaking with fear, okay? And that's what happens. That's what happens when you get the order of law and grace wrong. If you If you think, you know, it's my performance leads to how God feels about me, then you're going to go through life shaking with fear, not quite sure where you're staying with God. And so it's this strange thing of always, in other then you live your life always trying to prove yourself and at the same time terribly afraid of failure and definitely not free. That's a good description, I think, of just one little insight into our culture, the, of the mainstream of our culture. You find people... Unsure at a deep place in their own heart of, of their of their place in the universe, if there is a God out there, and what the Bible says is even those people who would say i don 't believe in God do and so they and so in an, in a very deep place in their life, there is quaking and trembling with fear, and so we go about our lives always trying to prove ourselves, but at the same time terribly afraid of the disapproval of others or of being thought of failure or of screwing things up and definitely not free. But see, what makes a Christian different, that holiness that comes, what makes us different is we're free. If you keep it in the right order, you'll be free free to fail, free to speak the truth and suffer the consequences, free to suffer and not melt down, but free. But I can, you know, all kinds of, there are all kinds of applications of this. That we could work. You know, how does grace then obedience make us a different kind of community, right? If you believe, if you, if you keep long grace in the right order, then, then one of the things you'll realize is you've not been treated as your sins deserve. And when you know, when you really begin to realize God has not treated me as my sins deserve, then you have no other choice but to, in your relationship with other people, not treat other people as their sins deserve. Right, and so whereas in our culture we believe, you know, you, you work hard and you're rewarded and that's how things work, and so then we get on to people, we praise people who work hard, we get on to those who don't, and it's this whole way of, of doing things, and so there's harshness, there's hypercriticism, there's impatience with people, we get frustrated easily in the church, we realize, no, the way our whole lives work is completely different, and so instead of You know, the harshness and the hypercriticism, we offer forgiveness and we're patient with one another in our weaknesses. See, it's knowing grace, it's understanding grace that makes us the holy people that God desires for us to be. The law is not what makes you holy, God's love is what makes you holy. So third, the third thing then, we have to take note of this passage, three things, the first is we have to take note of, of the importance of obedience, and then the order of of long and grace, but the third thing we have to take note of in the passage is the fulfillment of the law and the gospel, and that's, see, we've got to just fast forward all the way uh, to the to the end of the story, and that's how we become a kingdom of priests, see, it's not, it's not printed for you, and I wish it was, we do this early in the week, and I always say this, but things happen over the week, and I'm glad for that. But the people's response to this whole scene is recorded in verse 7. If you have a Bible, you can look there. God comes down, thunder and lightning, the smoke, the mountain begins to quake and tremble. And their response is marvelous. In verse 9, they say, oh, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And you read that, and you just shake your head, and you say, stupid people. Because, of course, we know that they will not do all that God has spoken. Not even close. And when Paul says in our assurance of pardon in Galatians, no one is justified by works of the law, why then the law? That's what he says, right? He's getting at something that's really important to understand. He says if the law is all that matters, if the law is all that matters, then he wouldn't say the law can't save you. But if the law didn't matter at all, then he wouldn't ask the question, why then the law? See, the middle ground that we're searching for between the law is all that matters position and the law doesn't matter at all position is to see that the law is important But even though it's important, it's not ultimate. Now, what do I mean? Paul says that God meant for the law to point beyond itself towards something else that was still to come. You've got to understand that. See, we're doing deep, we're doing heavy theology right now, okay? And we don't do that often, and so bear with me. But this is really important, I think. You've got to understand that. The solution to our problem with the law is not for us to obey the law. That's impossible. We can't do that in our own strength. But the solution isn't to just lay it aside either. No, what we need, what we need and what this this passage ultimately points us to, we need someone who can stand in our place and can say as if for us, all that God has spoken, I will do. Now listen to the Apostle Paul again about the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ came into the world to live the life we should have lived. The river swept him away too and dumped him out at the foot of Sinai. And the darkness that came down upon the mountain in Exodus 19 came down upon him too. And the ground shook just as it shook here. But when it did, when it did, he could say not... I will do all that God has spoken. No, what Jesus could say is, I have done all that God has spoken. And what the Bible says is, God looked upon his obedience. And he was satisfied, not only with him, but with all who are in him. All who have taken refuge in him. And that means, if you're a Christian, the reason your relationship with God is based upon grace and not law, is because Jesus has fulfilled the law for you. See, that's the gospel, right? So here's the trick question. Are you saved by works? We ask this all the time, and it's fun to watch people squirm. Are you saved by works? Yes. But whose works? But here's the thing, and then I'm done. Here's what I don't want you to miss, and this is just basic gospel 101, right? We're just going back to the gospel, which is what we do every week, because what's the problem with our lives? problem with our lives is not that we need to get beyond this gospel thing and get out there to the other stuff we need to be doing. No, it's that we still are in this fundamental unbelief and failure to to really believe the things we talk about on a weekly basis are true. And what the gospel promised to us this morning is, is just this. Not only does Jesus fulfill the law for you, but what the scripture would say is that he's also fulfilling the law in you. And the prophets look forward To the day when the law would be written on our hearts, not on tablets of stone, that the law would come inside and change us. The prophet Ezekiel says it this way. He looked forward to the day when God would give his people new hearts to replace their hearts of stone. And this new heart would be energized by God's spirit toward obedience. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that the obedience, the law was powerless to produce in us because of how weak our flesh is, God is now producing, he is fulfilling the law in us by the Holy Spirit. The promise of the gospel is not just that Jesus fulfills the law for us and we're, 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 you know, we're we're get-out-of-jail-free card. The promise of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that if you put your faith in him, if you jump into the river, the river's going to sweep you away, but part of what it's going to do is it's going to also make you a person who can obey his commands. Jesus fulfills the law for us, he fulfills the law in us. And if you want to know what that looks like, what that kind of obedience looks like, we have this last description that God is making us into a kingdom of priests. And maybe we'll come back to this later, but let me just say one short thing. Priests were mediators. They were a bridge between God and and the people. They brought God's word and God's love to people by teaching and serving them and caring for their physical needs. And they also brought the people before God in prayer and intercession. So God's saying, I'm going to make you all priests. Every single one of you, I'm going to turn you into a priest. I'm going to use you to take my words and to take my love to people, and I'm going to use you to bring people to me. And now we're back to the mission, aren't we? Isn't that what the mission's been since the very beginning? And so here he is again, yet again, calling us to the very thing that he has been calling us to from the very beginning of our uh, study of this Old Testament. Now, let me just finish by saying this. If you still think your obedience is the big deal, text says no. Jesus' obedience is the big deal. Your only hope is that he has fulfilled the law for you. And when you realize that, you'll no longer be one of those laws, all that matters, people. But if you think the law is something you have to get beyond, that spiritual maturity and spiritual enlightenment means you get beyond the rules, the text says no. Because Jesus not only fulfilled the law for us, he's fulfilling the law in us through the Holy Spirit. And see, when you come to understand that gospel truth, you'll no longer be one of the law. It doesn't matter at all, people, either. And we'll finally, see, it's in the messy center. It's in that messy place in between uh, where we really begin to figure out what obedience to passages like this passage of Scripture means. So hold on to those truths. Jesus loves you and is to fulfill the law for you. He is ascended to the Father in heaven and is seated at the right hand from where he has sent the Spirit into our hearts so that not only the law might be fulfilled for us in the person of Jesus, but that it also might be fulfilled in us by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the Christian hope. And so let's pray together this morning, can we, Father, where we still struggle and strain, where we limp, and uh, and we can feel our own brokenness and need. We thank you for the promise that you have come in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just to forgive us and to make atonement for our sins. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've died the death that we should have died, but also that in him we can find the righteousness that we so desperately need, that he has lived the life that we should have lived, and that if we put our faith in him, then his obedience is credited to, credited to us as righteousness. But how marvelous is the truth of the gospel that the promises of the gospel don't end just there, but also that Jesus suffered and died in our place and was raised on the third day and ascended to the Father in heaven that he might send the Spirit into our hearts to overcome our weakness and to take our stony hearts and to bring them back to life that they may beat and flow with, with uh, the new spiritual energy towards obedience. So thank you, Father, where we uh, still limp, where we still crawl along, where we feel completely outmatched by our own sin. The promise is not just that you forgive us, but leave us in our misery until we finally go to heaven when we die. The promise is that you will continue to come to work to make us a new creation in Christ Jesus. So help us to hope in that. Help us to aim at that. That we might be a people, as Jonathan prayed earlier, whose lives are full of beautiful works that others see and honor and glorify you. That's our hope and our desire, and so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to the order even of this part of our service. This is a commissioning. We end our service with with a benediction and a blessing that sends us out into the world as Jesus has called us. But remember, when he sends us, he doesn't send us and say, I hope that somewhere out there you'll find me. He stands right here at the beginning to say, I love you. I'll be with you, even to the end of the age, now go. So see, it's the promise of grace, it's the promise of fi- provision, it's the promise of blessing at the beginning that energizes us and propels us towards the work that he sends us to do. And so we go, not to be law that all, law is all that matters, people, but not to be law doesn't matter at all, people, either. We go with a sincere desire and hope to obey him, not trusting in our own strength, but in the power of the Spirit. Uh, which he has won for us through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension to the Father. So that's why I can raise my hands over you, because of all that Jesus has done. So trusting in him, receive this benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.